Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. If you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle, or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, Dr. Ronald B. Brown, PhD. He has uh, authored over a dozen peer-reviewed articles that appear in the U.S. National Library of Medicine and also in the National Institutes of Health. Today, I wanted to speak to him. We spoke last time about COVID and about uh, you know vaccine-type issues and other issues with COVID. Uh, this time, I wanted to speak to him for the cancer book that I'm putting together because he has some unique insights there. He's a very avid researcher uh, in the literature. So, Ron, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Richard. Nice to be back. Yeah, we've talked offline about cancer, and uh, it seems like you've done quite a bit of research into the literature behind it. So just for a start, what, what prompted you to even look at cancer literature, and then what did you start finding? Boy, you know, I never thought when people ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up, that I would have answered a cancer research, right? But it's turning out that way. I had just finished my PhD. I have a PhD in industrial organizational psychology. I got that back in 2011. And I learned research method called grounded theory. So how to review evidence to construct a theory that's grounded in the evidence. So this is the absolute opposite of what most people do. Most people start with an idea for a theory, and then they cherry pick evidence to support the theory while they ignore the evidence that refutes it. I don't do it that way. I use a conductive approach and it's much more effective. So after I graduated and I had, you know, developed some skill using that method, I started applying it on all kinds of health problems. And I came across an article written by a Harvard researcher about phosphate toxicity. And it really attracted my attention because as I looked through this article, he mentioned the author, his name is Mohammed Razak, He mentioned cancer and aging and vascular calcification and kidney disease and all kinds of other problems related to phosphate toxicity. So I thought, this is really interesting. And I started reading up on it to define phosphate toxicity. Might as well define it right now. Phosphorus is a mineral in your diet. It's an essential micronutrient. You need about 700 milligrams a day for an adult. A younger person actually needs a higher amount. And the reason for that is that phosphorus is related to protein. So the more protein you need, the more phosphorus you need. And children for their body weight need more protein than adults do. 
And so that's why their phosphorus intake is a bit higher, but it's only around 700 for an adult. And if you get too much of it and your kidneys can't regulate it, it could start accumulating in your body. And since it has a very acidic effect, that accumulation can cause what we call phosphate toxicity. And that could affect every organ system in the body. Can we yeah. focus on the kidneys for a second? So yeah. are the kidneys good at you know, getting rid of phosphate? And in what form do, they, do we excrete it when we urinate? Yeah, so it's inorganic phosphate. In other words, in organic chemistry, an inorganic compound is one that doesn't have any uh, carbon in it, right? So the most common molecule that contains phosphorus would be like calcium phosphate, for example. It's just the calcium and the phosphorus uh, molecules together. And that makes up most of our skeletal system. So next to calcium, phosphorus is actually the most abundant mineral in your body. And the kidneys regulate that in your serum. So if the, if the level is too high, the, the kidneys will increase the, uh, the excretion in the urine. The problem is, if the kidneys are constantly burdened, with a very high amount of phosphorus, it could eventually stress the kidneys so much that they start to become impaired. So it can actually damage the kidney. So even though you may appear to be immune from the effects of phosphate toxicity when you're younger, it catches up with you as you get older, especially as your kidneys become more impaired. And so once that happens, and then phosphorus starts to accumulate above amounts that are healthy for you, as I said, it can affect almost every organ system in your body. And that's why Mohammed had, uh, was reviewing all of the different conditions that were associated with phosphate toxicity. So that has been the focus of my research. And when I started working on cancer, I came up with many insights that I wanna share with the audience. And I wanna thank you, Richard, for allowing me to share this information because I published an article with Mohammed. By the way, I never said that I wrote to Mohammed Razak and he liked what I was saying about his research. So he invited me to write articles with him. So we were doing research together for, for a few years. And one of the projects that we worked on was uh, phosphate toxicity and tumorigenesis. So tumor obviously is, is a cancer and genesis means growth. So cancer growth. So how is phosphate toxicity related to cancer growth? And it was a very successful article. It was published in a major journal, BBA Reviews on Cancer, back in 2018. And I was very excited about this. So I tried to contact the media to announce, not that we had the cure for cancer, but that we had discovered a lot of really important things about what causes cancer and how we could probably prevent it. But I was kind of disappointed. I had one I'm not going to use the name of the media outlet that was very interested. And yeah. we, were, we were writing a press release and we were summarizing the article. But uh, at the last minute, they decided to censor the article. And the reason they did, they didn't come out and say this, but the, what I think happened was we got into a discussion in the article about dairy products and how dairy products are related to increased risk of cancer. And apparently there was, that didn't go over too well with the people running the media company. So that was the end of that. So ever since 2018, I've been more or less just sitting on this research. Well, sitting on, I've been doing many more follow-up articles on cancer. Well, let, let, let's go through it for a bit. So yeah. how does, how does phosphate, excess phosphate promote tumor genesis? What's the mechanism? Well, Think of fertilizer. Fertilizer is used to stimulate growth in plants, obviously. And one of the most common ingredients in a fertilizer is phosphorus. In fact, we use phosphorus so much that it's, you know, we have agricultural runoff of phosphorus that's causing a problem uh, called eutrophication. The phosphorus starts to accumulate in the, in the bodies of water where it feeds the growth of algae. So we get these algae blooms. That's all from phosphorus. Phosphorus is stimulating the growth. Now, imagine that, that's in plants. Imagine that's happening in your body. That would be the, the best analogy, the simplest analogy I could make. It actually stimulates overgrowth. Now, this is a lot different than the conventional theories of tumorigenesis. The conventional theories of tumorigenesis include the idea that 
somehow this growth happens because the cancer cells attack the body. It's coming from without. And for some reason, there's just uncontrolled growth. My evidence kind of refutes that. It says, Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. There are other reasons having to do with the dysregulated uh, phosphate metabolism so that the tumors, which by the way are solid growth, okay, growth, solid tissue growth. I'm not talking about leukemias or any of those types of cancers. I'm, my research is just basically on the tumors, the, the solid tumors. The tumors, it turns out, are kind of like deposits where the body can store up excess amounts of phosphorus. Now, why does it do that? It does that to keep the, body, the phosphorus out of circulation because that's how dangerous phosphate toxicity can, can be. It can kill you, you know, right away. So- Well, is the, is the tumor, I mean, why would the body work with the tumor to store anything? Is it that the tumor prefers phosphorus for its metabolism and tends to store it there? It's very interesting. Remember I said the phosphorus, the phosphorus is like a fertilizer. Well, the phosphorus stimulates the growth of the cell and that additional growth becomes the tumor. So it's actually a reciprocal relationship. The phosphorus stimulates the growth and the growth helps to sequester the phosphorus and keep it out of the circulation. So it's, nature is wonderful the way it, it figures all this stuff out. Let me go back a second to the plants again and how they absorb phosphorus. In the root system of a plant, they have a, there's a fungus on the bottom of the root system called the mycorrhiza. The mycorrhiza has phosphate transporters built right in. It's designed to suck up phosphorus out of the soil and sequester it into the plant so the plant can use it. If there's too much phosphorus in the soil, what happens is, for example, let's take corn. You get, you get overgrowth of the corn kernels. It's actually a condition called corn smut. Kind of funny word, but that's corn what smut. happens. Smut. Look for a picture and you'll see, because, you know, unfortunately, we don't have any uh, video here. You can see that the kernels are overgrown. They're tumorous. All right. So what happens is you force all that phosphorus in and there's no place for it to go. So it winds up creating that extra growth. And then that extra growth winds up sequestering all that excess phosphorus. Now, it turns out that there's an analogy to tumors in people or in animals that we also have these phosphorus transporters in the legs and the feet of the tumor. Now, let me explain that for a second, because that sounds kind of weird. But Hippocrates was the first to observe that tumors look like crabs. In other words, there's a central body, but then there are these legs that come off of the body that look like a crab. And that's exactly what you see in many tumors, not all tumors, tumors can come in many different sizes, but you can commonly find tumors that have that same appearance. And that appearance is caused by these legs and feet jutting out. So why is that? Well, think of the root system in the plant. It's kind of like the same thing for the tumor. And in those legs, phyllopodia and lamellopodia is what we call that. They have Maybe I got that. I might have to go back and correct that terminology. But the point is, okay. they have phosphate tr transporters in them, more than normal in normal cells. In other words, their function mm -hmm. and structure was designed to suck up excess phosphorus from what we call the, the tumor microenvironment. So all the cells, you know, in that area around the tumor. So would, would you be able to guess that, I guess, tumor cells are upregulated in terms of their phosphate transporters. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yes. The more, well, the experimental experiments on animals have shown 
that the 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 uh, cells increase their genetic expression of these types of transporters in the cell. The more you feed, the more you feed phosphorus, the more they're exposed to phosphorus. So the phosphorus has a direct impact on the genetic expression of the cells that absorb the phosphorus. Okay. Do you know if there's been any experimentation done to look at, uh, again, phosphorus transporters or phosphate transporters in cancer cells or in any cells in general? Well, my research looks at prevention. Now, I'm sure there are other types of research that look at those transporters and try to figure out how can we turn them off? You know, that's the usual right, approach, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah. I'm not really up on that type of research. I, my research would ask the question, how do we prevent all this phosphorus from getting into our bodies in the first place? I mean, cancer is not caused by a lack of, of chemotherapy or surgery or radiation. It's, it's caused by other things. And this research identifies one of the main risk factors is getting too much phosphorus. So let me just talk about cancer in general. You know, 27,000 people die of cancer every day, at least in 2020, over the, you know, over the world, 27,000 people a day. It's one of, obviously, it's one of the major causes of cancer. What most people don't realize is during your lifetime, you have about a 50-50 chance of, of getting cancer. So it's yeah, I was going to say the stats are the stats yeah. are unbelievably scary. It's yeah, it's rare to get cancer on a yearly basis, but when you look at your whole lifetime, you have a 50-50 chance of getting cancer. And by the way, that includes all the healthcare workers, you know, and all the oncologists too. They're no different. So this is important mm -hmm. research. It's what Mohammed and I did was we spent uh, several years using that method that I described, that uh, grounded theory method, to assemble all of these findings from all of the research liter literature having to do on anything with phosphorus and having anything to do with cancer. And that's where we began to identify the, the high phosphorus diet as probably the most modifiable cause of cancer that we can control. And that's kind of, you know, that's encouraging if you think about it. In fact, people with kidney disease, chronic kidney disease, are often put on a low phosphorus diet. In fact, there are dietitians who are especially trained, they're called renal dietitians, to put patients on those types of diets. Now, it never occurred. Why, why are those done traditionally? Is because with lower phosphorus, I guess they've ascertained. Uh, helps the kidneys function better? Exactly. The kidneys can't, when, once they become impaired and damaged, uh, they can't filter out the phosphorus from the serum anymore, along with other minerals too, and other things mm. like albumin and stuff. So the phosphorus itself contributes to that problem. That's what the evidence begins to show, right? So that's why sure. the renal dietitians put people on these uh, low phosphorus diets. And now I guess I should mention there is a pharmacotherapy uh, that's also often used called called a phosphate binder. So the idea of the phosphate binder is it prevents the phosphorus from being absorbed into your system in your intestines. So that's another route you can go if you want. But again, you know. But, oh, well, you, one, well, one thing that might point out something interesting is people that are on phosphorus binders, mm -hmm. what happens to them? What are the side effects? And do they have lower levels of cancer, for instance? Well, as far as lower levels of cancer, I don't know. That's a good question, actually. You should look into that. But there are side effects. There are gastrointestinal uh, side effects. And it, they don't really work all that well anyway. And there's also compliance issues. Who wants to be taking these? You know, every time you eat something, you have to swallow a pill, you know, another pill. Yeah. So there's, 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 there are issues with that. Again, that's not my area of research. My area of research is what are the lifestyle factors that we could control? All right. So. Our idea is after we reviewed all this information and we published it, and I've published at least half a dozen more articles on cancer. By the way, in my first manuscript that I wrote in Mohammed, it was so long, we had so much information. He said, well, we're gonna have to cut this down. We only published about a third of it. So I've been kind of just trying to catch up and publish more of it. I got two things I wanna say. So I wanted to finish up by saying that if we could get the renal dietitians to ma help manage phosphorus in cancer patients, what would the effect of that be? That's our hypothesis. We predict that it could have an effect 
on regressing cancer growth, you know, helping to prevent growth. Now, this is not a cure, okay? A cure means you take something, you take a pill, you take something, and without doing anything else, your symptoms go away. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a lifestyle modification. So if we manage to put together a, a, feasibility, a feasibility study like this, we would put patients, we would, we could, what we could do is a, what they call N of one study, where you just take one patient at a time, you work with their oncologist, you get them a renal dietitian, and you know, you see what effect going on a low phosphorus diet has on their tumors. Now you can then go on to the next stage. Now you can divide them up into groups. One group gets the low phosphorus diet and the other doesn't. And then you can start looking for differences. So there are ways that we can begin to do this type of research. But, you know, I needed to connect up with people who have the funding to do this type of research. In the meantime, all of this, all of this literature is just sitting there. So it needs to be acted upon. Now, I want to say one other thing about phosphate toxicity. Phosphate toxicity in animal studies shows that the animals die of a particular type pathology. They lose a lot of their bone mass because phosphorus sucks out all the calcium from their bone. So they get what we call kyphosis. Their spines become bent over. They become hunched over, right? Their, mm -hmm. their muscles start to weaken and disappear. That's called sarcopenia. And they have all kinds of other problems, obviously kidney issues. It turns out that there's a type of lab mouse that doesn't get tumors. They do not express a protein called P53. So the, the, the P53 negative mice. The problem is, and you might think, well, that's wonderful. We just have to research that. The problem is that they die sooner than normal mice, right? But here's what's, what they die of. They die of exactly the same thing that the mice on phosphate toxicity die of. Exactly. I'll show you pictures where they have that kyphosis, hunched over, sarcopenia, all the same problems. It's exactly the same. So what does that infer? It infers that without the tumors there to protect them, the phosphate toxicity is just running rampant in their body and destroying their body, just like it does when you oh. normally feed, you know, too much phosphorus to a mouse. Or Wait, so there's P53, if you knock it out, that what, it prevents absorption of phosphorus? No, it, it, pre it prevents the growth of the tumor, period. Oh, it just prevents the growth of the tumors. Okay. So if you don't have the tumor anymore... And you, you're not managing your phosphorus intake. So what we, would, we would need to do more some more experiments on this. Obviously, we would have to see the effect. What would be the effect of feeding those P53 mice, you know, a high phosphorus diet? Would they, would they develop their symptoms sooner? The fact is, there's no tumor there to protect them. Now, I know this sounds, what's the word? Revolutionary to suggest that the tumor is actually self-protective. I mean, I could just hear what's the criticisms right now but that's what the evidence is oh, I, i've i've postulated that a tumor is a, an organism unto itself you know that has its own homeostatic drive and everything it, it has to. yeah it has its own uh, it, uh circulatory system it grows vessels neovascularization yeah if i think of a if someone thinks of a tumor as a separate living organism that has yeah. its own drive again to to exist and not to die, then it makes sense it would do whatever it would need to to, uh, to do that. So let's talk for a little bit about phosphorus in your diet. Like mm -hmm. what are the highest sources of phosphorus? Uh, the foods that make, that contribute the most amount to your phosphorus intake are dairy products. That's the number one food. By the way, renal dietitians who are treating chronic kidney disease patients, that's the number one food that they proscribe. In other words, don't eat it, dairy products. Grains also are very high in phosphorus and all meats are high in phosphorus. So as you begin to see, well, what else is left? <laughs> the fact is the USDA recommended diet that we're told to eat has about 1,800, 1,700 milligrams of phosphorus a day. Research has shown at 1,400 milligrams, all cause mortality begins to increase. So we're, we're being told to eat a diet that you know, it's high enough in phosphorus to start to increase our mortality. The actual recommended amount is only 700 milligrams a day when, when you break it down to how much we actually need. 
In fact, we actually need twice as much calcium as phosphorus, but, in, but we wind up eating twice as much phosphorus as calcium. So the foods that give you the most nutrients as far as fats, proteins, carbohydrates, calories and generals, and all the other micronutrients are fruits and vegetables, basically, with a little bit of the healthier fats, like avocados, for example, uh, nuts and seeds. It turns out that if you put a diet together with those types of foods, you wind up having a balanced diet, meeting all your nutrition, uh, nutrition needs while keeping your phosphorus levels low. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to become a vegetarian. It's only, I'm only pointing that out to show you the difference in the different types of foods and, their and how they contribute to your phosphorus intake. All right, let me see what else I have. So here. are you, well, are you an N of one? Are you on a uh, low phosphorus <laughs> diet? And what, what's been the, how long have you been on it? What's been the effect on you? I feel great. It's absolutely wonderful. And so you're on a low phosphorus diet? Like, you know, just tell listeners like, how have you modified your diet or what do you eat? And what, how much phosphorus are you taking in? Yeah, I follow more of the Mediterranean plant-based diet, right? And mm -hmm. I try to keep my phosphorus below a thousand milligrams or a gram a day which is actually what they recommend for kidney disease patients. Now, I don't have kidney disease. I don't think I do, but who cares? It doesn't really matter. The point is if I don't want to get kidney disease, I got to start paying attention to, to stuff like this, right? So- and Aren't I'm, you like uh, 300 years old? I'm 400 actually. You know- Wait, So how long have you been on this diet? And, and you know, has it been a long time or a little bit of time? Uh, what, what have you experienced? You know, I mean, you're, you're, I would, you feel fine, but what are, yeah. have you experienced any, uh, I don't know, like how did it make you feel? I feel great. I don't, mm. there's nothing like wrong with me, you know, and <laughs> there's nothing like, I, I know what you're trying to get at. What did I recover from and what went away? And I'm nothing. It's just, I feel good. I'm normal. Okay. It's normal to be healthy. So oh, that's I, great. I've been, yeah. I've been doing this for about uh, two to three years. I mean, ever since we, we published our findings, I mean, what else are you going to do? Now, I don't know if Muhammad does anything like that, but the writing's on the wall for me. I mean, you know, and I love doing this. And the thing is, this research has been around for a while. There were actually studies back in the 1950s showing that when you feed animals or even with just cells in a Petri dish, the more phosphorus you add, the more it increases what, what we call the RNA and the DNA, the nucleic acids. Well, that's what increases the growth of the cell. And if you feed too much, the cell begins to overgrow. And that's what causes the cancer. Well, what else would you expect to see for someone on a standard diet that has a lot of phosphorus? Like, oh. I guess they'd have a predisposition towards cancer, but would you expect them to become obese? Or what would you expect you know, them to start showing albumin in their urine or creatinine leakage in their kidneys? Like, what would you expect to see? You would see problems like osteoporosis. Again, the phosphorus uh, causes an imbalance in calcium metabolism. You would see problems in vascular calcification. Again, so if the phosphorus is causing calcium problems, what happens is the excess phosphorus attracts excess calcium out of your bones, night with it. But then your kidneys can't eliminate that. Well, if your kidneys could eliminate it, then it would have eliminated the excess phosphorus in the first place. So if it's not eliminating the excess phosphorus in the first place, how is it going to eliminate the calcium phosphate that forms when that excess, excess phosphate attaches on to calcium drawn out of your bones? And this is what a researcher from Germany in the 19th century, Rudolf Virchow, found. He, he, he found this condition called calcium metastasis. And he found that under certain conditions, calcium was coming out of the bones when he was conducting autopsies of, of, the, of these dead people. And it was being deposited into soft tissue all throughout the body, including in, in the vascular system. Now, Does it preferentially come out of some bones versus others? No. Say that? Well, you know, that's a good question. Where the, uh, the skeletal system acts like a, a reservoir. Right. So wherever the, there's more dense bone, I guess that's where there's the most drawdown. For example, your hips, mm -hmm. uh, your femurs. I mean, why do you think there are so many people that have problems like that? It's because it's related to osteoporosis related to calcium phosphate. Now, if you go to get tested for your your calcium serum levels, 
that's not a good indicator of whether you're having a problem with your calcium metabolism. A better indicator is parathyroid hormone. That's the hormone that's attached to the back of your thyroid gland that monitors your calcium and your phosphorus serum levels, right? And so if the calcium levels dip too low and the phosphorus levels dip too, or, or elevated too high, then the, this PTH hormone, this uh, parathyroid hormone comes out, stimulates the bone to release calcium, which unites with the phosphorus. And then it also, the PTH also uh, helps the kidney to eliminate the phosphorus uh, in, in the urine. But of course, there's only a limit to how much, how successful that can be if the kidneys aren't working very well. So other conditions related to phosphorus are, for example, diabetes. Now, how does that happen? Well, here's the thing. Remember that calcification affects soft tissue. One of the tissues it affects are the glandular system, tissues of the glandular system. So in diabetes, we're looking at the pancreas, for example. It's related to depression and stress. And why? Because it, that calcification is now affecting the adrenal glands, for example, and with cortisol, that it excretes cortisol. So the, the, the phosphate toxicity, by the way, causes inflammation. So you have the adrenal glands uh, secreting cortisol in response to the inflammation at the same time that the phosphate toxicity is impairing the adrenal glands by depositing calcium phosphate into it. Okay, so has anyone studied if there's preferential places where calcium phosphate gets deposited? Well, everywhere. In your eyes, cataracts, name it, in your skin. That's what wrinkles up your skin. You know, in the bone itself, in the bone itself. That's really interesting. Do you know that women who have higher bone mineral, mineral density are at higher risk for cancer, for breast cancer? Why is that? Well, when they do get the breast cancer, their bone, their, uh, the minerals in their bones begins to drop very rapidly. Why was it high in the first place? Probably, and we need more evidence of this, related to that ectopic calcification I was talking about. So that <laughs> excess calcium phosphate can go in the bone itself. Of course, it doesn't do any good when it's put in that way. It doesn't contribute to the actual structure of the bone. And you know, the osteoporosis drugs that, that we take, they work by impairing the ability of the bone to break down old bone with the osteoclast. They impair the ability of the osteoclast to work. So it appears that you're improving your bone mineral density, but that's only because you're retaining more of the old bone that's actually weakening your system. So there's always an underside to all of these tricks, you know, these yeah. symptomatic tricks. You got to get down to, to the real cause and look at the animals too. Well, this, this could explain some things. So like, you know, I've, I've seen there's a test to look at the amount of a calcification inside your heart, you know, calcium appears there and the more calcium you have, the higher your score, the more likely you're going to have heart disease. So well, you think the calcification there is because of this, this calcium phosphate buildup. Yeah. Especially in the heart valves. That's right. where, that's where it really affects the heart itself. Right. The heart tissue itself is not as vulnerable. It's the valves that are vulnerable to calcification. And anything that gets calcified is just not going to work as well anymore. And, you know, just getting back to the animals for a second, our uh, primates, our non-human primates, have, are naturally kind of immune to cancer because they generally eat plant-based diets. Now, they eat some meat, but they don't eat anywhere near the type of meat we eat. And then you look at phosphorus in the water supply. Remember I was talking about that at the beginning. And uh, for example, in the St. Lawrence river, you have the whales that inhabit the river or have one of the highest incidences of cancer of all wild animals. Again, it's because of all the phosphorus runoff. And actually mm -hmm. just recently I was reading, they, they're finding that over on the West coast down in California with, with the, uh, the seals. And again, it's all related to too much phosphorus. So why is that anyway? Well, here's the thing. Phosphorus is a part of, as I said before, nucleic acid. You can't have cell, cell growth without RNA and DNA. Phosphorus forms the backbone of the RNA and the DNA. All the rest of the RNA and the DNA is formed by compounds that you get from oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and hydrogen. Very common types of elements 
Phosphorus in comparison is not as common as those other elements. Therefore, phosphorus becomes what we call the uh, growth limiting factor. The amount of excess nucleic acids that you, your body will create depends upon how much excess phosphorus gets into your body, right? And then that stimulates the excess growth. So every way you look at it, no matter what angle you look at it from, it all fits together, right? That's the beauty of this. Mm. So there we go. Well, I know in, in plants, they talk about NPK, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Mm -hmm. I wonder if in, uh, in, in people, you know, what's the role of nitrogen or again, potassium in relation to phosphorus, if it's similar or if it's, you know, totally different in us versus plants. Yeah, well, we need carbon, nitrogen, you know, oxygen. Obviously, it's in everything. It's in all our tissues. But if you don't have enough phosphorus, it's like baking a cake. If you don't have just enough of the least most, you know, ing important ingredient, it doesn't matter how many of the other ingredients you have, right? So the least abundantly uh, essential ingredient determines how much of the uh, cake or whatever it is you're baking or creating, you know, tissue in your body. So the that's why that explains why the phosphorus is considered a growth regulating mineral. By the way, alcohol, mm. salt, tobacco, all related to cancer. Now, wait a minute. I know what you're going to say. There's no phosphorus in alcohol. There's no phosphorus in salt, except alcohol and salt help to impair kidney function. So indirectly, that could contribute to higher risk for cancer. And as far as tobacco, tobacco does have a lot of phosphorus in it. They, they, they use superphosphate fertilizers on tobacco. I've heard, and this is just, you know, anecdotal, but I've heard that you can get organic tobacco that may not have that, but I wouldn't count on that, you know, that might may not have that exposure. So, so if I was to say, you know, all right, Ron, let's do a clinical trial to test, you know, this, this hypothesis, what would that look like for you? We would start with an N of one study. You know, you're writing this great book on cancer and you're in touch with all these oncologists. Good for you. You know? Maybe they can listen to, you know, some of this type of research. And if they're open-minded enough, we're not asking them to give up their treatments or anything, but take a patient who might be interested in this. Let's try it. You know, get a renal dietitian, put them on the low phosphorus diet. And well, there are many well, ways. Why do, you, why, yeah, why do an N of one? Why not get a cohort of a hundred people with a certain kind of cancer and put them on a low phosphorus diet and see if- You know, I can tell you're, you must have big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not saying I have the money. I'm just saying if if, if someone yeah. were to hand you the money you needed, what would your ideal clinical trial look like to test ah, this? Ah, now you're asking a different question. Okay. We get a clinical trial and the, we do the same thing. We just basically randomize the people between the high phosphorus and, and not even the high phosphorus. You know what? The low phosphorus diet and let's say the USDA diet, the normal diet. Who's going to object to that, right? The normal United States Department of Agricultural Diet. And let's see what happens. And, you know, these are our patients, okay? And we have their baseline tumors and we keep measure, measurements of that. And over six to eight weeks, we see if there's any difference between the two groups. It's as simple as that. In the meantime, they can also be undergoing their other treatments too. And we can stratify them according to what treatments they're getting. And I predict that the results, well, I hope the results will be so great that we have to, we have to call off the trial, you know, prematurely because it would be considered unethical to withhold the low phosphorus diet from the other cancer patients from the control group, right? So that's my dream. That would be the, the best way to do it. But you know what? I don't see why it wouldn't work. I really don't. Like all the evidence is there. All the animal studies are there. All the cell studies are there. All the epidemiological population studies are there. And nobody's really looking at this. And then when I wasn't getting any, you know, support from the press, I figured the heck with this, you know, I'm just going to go on and keep on doing this research. And all the other research did was just, just confirm everything I was saying. Now, there is one bit of evidence, because I was thinking, is there no, is there no contradictory evidence at all? There is one thing. They've done some studies with phosphorus and tumors, and they found that when they cut the phosphorus intake, the tumors still continued to grow. You mean they, oh, they cut the phosphorus in their diet or they block it with a drug? I, I don't recall. Either way, they, they probably just reduced the phosphorus. It might even be a cell study. I, I'm not sure. I'm just talking off the top of my head here. But no, actually, it wasn't a cell study. It had to be an animal study. 
So why would the, the cancer continue to grow? The, the reason that I've come up with is that excess phosphorus over time built up the ribosomes. That's where the, the uh, biosynthesis of the protein that causes the excess growth occurs. And it takes time. Think of the ribosome as like a factory. You have all of those raw ingredients that went into building a bigger factory. Now it's gonna take time for that factory to shrink back down again. In the meantime, it's still continuing to turn out all these excess proteins. So just because you've done a short-term study, man, cut down on the phosphorus and you still saw a tumor growth. That's not sufficient. You have to go a little longer term, right? You have to give it a, uh, your system a chance for the ribosomes to themselves return back to normal. By the way, when you get your cells tested in a biopsy, one of the methods, and there are many methods to test for cancer, is they do a morphological study. They're looking to see how the shape of the cell itself, itself changes. And that change in the shape has to do with how the ribosomes are growing and the nucleus are growing. They become larger and darker. Well, that's all because of all the nucleic acid that's being stored up in there from the phosphorus. Remember, if it wasn't for the phosphorus, that never would have happened. So, okay, so what, it's been observed clinically that uh, in cells, again, that have higher phosphorus, they tend to darken and the ribosomes become larger. And right. what happens to the functioning of the cell? Like how does it uh, deteriorate? Where does it, does it turn cancerous or does it, uh, what's that is, Well, that, that is cancer. Okay, so there are three stages of cancer. There's the initiation stage, the promotion stage, and the progression stage, right? So the initiation stage means that there's a genetic change in the cell but there's really no cancer yet. The cancers, the tumor itself starts during the uh, promotion stage. So it's promoted into a growth. And then eventually it keeps on growing. So it's not really harming the cell itself, it's just growing, right? But when that growth becomes too much, for example, let's say in you know brain cancer, even though it's not in the, the brain itself, it's actually more in the connective tissue around the brain, eventually that's gonna you know, impede upon the brain function. So it becomes a problem. And then there's metastasis. That's the, the uh, promotion progression stage, right? Now, the theory behind that is the soil and seed theory or the seed and soil theory, I get it backwards, that the cancer breaks off and starts you know, proliferating in other areas. The latest evidence is beginning to contradict that. What's really happening is that the phosphate toxicity is what's spreading. Right, which makes sense. It's the phosphate. It's the same as eutrophication in in the waterways, right? Wherever it spreads, that's where you get more algae growth. So that's the problem, and that's why the body reacts against it. So it's not killing you out now, but it becomes a problem eventually. You know what? In my opinion, and now this is just my opinion, the phosphate toxicity that underlines a tumor growth is probably the one that's doing the most damage to your system. That Why do you think we get cachexia? Cachexia means, it's remember the P53 mice we were talking about and the mice yeah. that were damaged by phos phosphate toxicity? That's what cachexic patients, cancer patients with cachexia have. They're wasting away. It's a wasting disease. It's the same effect. That's not from the tumor, in my opinion. That's from the, tox the phosphate toxicity that causes the tumor, right? Why would it cause wasting in that case? Well, because that's what phosphate toxicity does. Remember, we talked about the metastatic calcification and how your bones deteriorate. And that's all part of it. Everything we've been talking about. So that's not from the tumor, right? That's coming from the phosphate toxicity. This is why it's important. You know, you're young and your kidneys can cope. But if you're eating twice as much as you need to eat, that can only go on for so long. Who knows how long we could live? And who knows how healthy we could be during a long life? Uh, we could get funding from all kinds of people. It doesn't necessarily have to be from the big agencies, right? The funding agencies. And we could, you already have the oncologists. We just have to make our case, right? And just do six to eight weeks, that's all. Start out with the end of one or go to small feasibility studies of small trials and get bigger and bigger. And who knows if it doesn't work at all, then we then we'll just say thank you very much. At least we we tried. Have you uh, have you priced this out on what you think it would cost? And have you looked into IRBs? And I, I don't think it would be too hard to get an IRB for this, but maybe I don't know. But you have need, you looked into this to see? Not, I haven't actually budgeted the uh, budgeted the uh, study out. But what you would require would be you would hire a clinical team, right? 
a principal, researcher, an assistant, and then like a statistician. And then you're working right. with the oncologist anyway, and they have access also to the dietitians. So it's not that expensive, really. It's just a question of hiring that, that, that small team. You know what? It's like being a producer of a show. Like I work in the arts and I produced my own shows. And what you do is you get up a good script. Well, I've done that in my research because I got up all this research, but these findings, yes, my script, okay? And then you find somebody that's got some money, maybe you, I don't know, or some other guy, or you know guys that do have money. And then you get them to support this. They become like your angel investors, right? And, and you say, hey, would you, guys, would you like to contribute to a, the possible prevention of cancer? See, I, I try to stay away from that word cure, right? Because it really misses. Right, right. So, and, but I'm sure you can get people interested in it. Okay, so you get the investment money, you hire that team, and then the team does, they put the study together. I would I obviously work with them, you know, because here's, I'm the guy, I'm the theory guy. I'm the guy that put together all the evidence and here's the theory and generating the hypothesis. Now, how can we implement that clinically, you know, and test it on people? That's where the clinical team comes in. It's like hiring the actors and the director and the actors and the dancers and the singers. You're the producer of the show. You don't have to do the acting, dancing, and singing, right? Well, I you hire the people to do that, right? So there you go. It's the same thing. And the audience in this case would be the cancer patients. <laughs> well, I mean, people seem to, it seems to be a bugaboo. It's very hard to get, you know, to control people's diets, supposedly in these clinical trials. And uh, it just seems to be a very difficult thing. You do the best so, you can. You know what? We don't yeah. need perfection. We just need to see a significant difference between the two groups. Right. That's it. Right. Right. That's all that matters. And then that gets front page headlines. And then we're going on to bigger trials. Now we're getting major funding. And you know what? I'll tell you another thing. I hear what you're saying about how hard it is for people to modify their diet. But, you know, there are a lot of cancer patients out there that would love this information if they really felt it would really help them, if it was really not just more the anecdotal kind of stuff that they have to choose from, if it was really evidence-based and if there were real scientists behind this. I yeah, wouldn't yeah. underestimate how cooperative you might get some people. And again, we only need to demonstrate this. That's all we need to do. We're not actually out trying to get rid of cancer in the world yet. Well, I'm not telling people, you know, this is not medical advice. We're not telling people to do or not do anything. And of course, yeah. they should consult you know, their doctor, but if people wanted to find out how to construct a low phosphorus diet, what are some resources for them that you've seen online? Just the, uh, there's all kinds of renal diets for chronic kidney disease on, on the web. And they're all, but have you, I mean, I, I, you know, we talked offline about your diet and it seems to be very different from what's right. recommended online. So I don't know, I'm not saying, you know, who should you trust, who should you not trust, but what's like a really easy way for, you know, let's say someone eats a certain way and they don't want to go crazy and change everything, but they want to slowly tweak their diet to lower their phosphorus. Yeah. What what would be your suggestion on how they could do that? Well, move more toward that plant-based diet, cut down on the grains, the meat and the dairy, right? We talked about those foods. Those are the foods that are highest in phosphorus, you know, now yeah. nuts and seeds are high in phosphorus too, but Nuts and seeds have lots of cows, uh, calories, right? So the amount of phosphorus you're getting per calorie is pretty low. Now you need calories to live. You need you know, a certain amount, 2,000, let's say 2,000 a day for an adult, a female at least. So where are you gonna get those calories from? You wanna get them from foods that are gonna contribute the least amount of phosphorus. Those are the fruits and the vegetables and small amounts of the healthy fats. Now, if you don't wanna eat that way, and that's basically, going more toward the Mediterranean diet, you can still include some dairy and meat and fish and chicken, right? And some grains and stuff, but you have to limit it. That's the point. Now, how do you know how much to limit it? Well, unless you have a dietitian there to construct it for you, you can follow menus that have already been constructed online, or you can construct it yourself. Just go to a website like Chronometer, for example, put in your food choices and out pops all of uh, all the nutrients in that menu that you just made, right? Target, keep it below a thousand milligrams a day. Now it changes too. Pregnant women need more. Women who are menstruating need more during ovulation. Again, because your, your, reproduction, your reproductive system is ramping up, right? For growth. Anything having to do with growth is going to require more phosphorus. So you have to take those things into, into consideration also. 
So I'm not suggesting that anybody should just go out and actually do this themselves. That's my honest yeah. answer, right? There's so many things you need to do. There are people who are skilled professionally to do this for you. So work with those people. But you know, if you are a cancer patient and you have an oncologist, there are oncology dietitians. Here's, here's a challenge. Are the oncology, oncology dietitians going to allow the renal dietitians to join the team? That could be, there could be some political problems there. Who knows? That's something to look mm. at. But, you know, it's all set up. It's all ready to go. Has anyone looked at like bodybuilders? You know, they're, you know, some, well, not all of them, but some are taking steroids. They're trying to build themselves up. They're trying to be super anabolic. And has anyone looked at uh, their phosphorus intake? And, you know, for a bodybuilder, would it even be healthy temporarily to, to increase it? Or what would it do if you were, let's say, a bodybuilder and you had a low phosphorus uh, intake? Let's, they, be, they, they don't care. They, what's so the would point? They them, don't would care. Would it help them bulk up faster? What if it's it not going to help them. Faster? Well, that's, they take their steroids. What the heck does that have to do with a low phosphorus diet? No, I'm saying if they, if I just wonder, it, it might be another uh, method of proof. If, if you're a bodybuilder and you're trying to really bulk up and yeah. you're doing steroids or not, and you go to a low phosphorus diet, would it counteract your ability to bulk up? I yeah, what would happen. It might be an interesting well, experiment. Maybe it remember, would help you. I don't know. Yeah, remember we said that phosphorus was related to protein, right? So you cut down your phosphorus, you're going to be cutting down your protein intake also. I don't know any bodybuilders who would go along with that. But that's why yeah, they're just such short careers, you know. Eventually, they yeah. do want to get back to a normal diet. That's when they might want to explore the phosphate diet. But not when they're making a career posing on stage. It's just not going to work. And it's hmm. not the problem of the phosphate diet. It's just, you know, that's the way the sport is. Now, personally, I like to do bodybuilding as a hobby, but I'm, I'm a natural bodybuilder, right? I, I compete in natural contests. And that's not to say that there aren't people taking steroids in those contests too. But for my, oh, but that, that's for my good. Point, that's good. So you're a bodybuilder. Yeah. You're on a low phosphorus diet. Oh, there so you go. That's an excellent point. Now I see what you're getting at. You're yeah. an R of one. You're a round of one. So, so know, what's happened with you? Since you've been doing a low phosphorus diet with your bodybuilding, does it, I can get is it effortless? Much is it hard or what? No, it's just as easy. In fact, it's easier. It's easier. Okay, good. Do you know that when you you have to cook all that meat and stuff, it makes it almost impossible to digest. Well, you can digest it, but you can't really break it down into amino acids. It fuses together, right? It's difficult when when you're eating fruits and vegetables and like raw nuts and seeds and stuff. It, it's much more efficient. It works much more efficiently in your body for growth purposes. And you know what? Look at breast milk. Now that is the growth food of our species. It's a low protein food. Now, granted, babies don't grow as rapidly as like pigs and cows and calves and, you know, and horses. They grow pretty fast though. But they still grow, grow fast, fast on a low, basically a low protein diet. I'll tell you another thing. Yeah, if you, if you really breastfeed, if, if you breastfeed for a whole year, that's the only thing the babies had. Yeah. So, I mean, and they grow and they survive and yeah. millions of us have, uh, well, not, I mean, now, listen, now it's a far listen less. Listen to but... this. The coconut has protein that is, was found to be, have better growth promoting properties than meat, milk, and eggs. That was known over a hundred years ago. If you want to know the studies, I can tell you what the studies are. It beats meat, milk, and eggs, coconut protein. Of course, all these people are eating their coconut oil. Well, duh. Why not just eat the coconut? Get the protein, too. So, what, you could buy coconut meat, I guess, is what you call it? Yeah, you can buy it frozen. And you, and, would you cook it into food? Well, you, I, what I do, I grind it up and blend it in salads and fruits and stuff, make soups and stuff out of it. You can make a great coconut oh, okay. milk chowder. Coconut milk is just basically ground up coconut with water, right? Once you have right. that, use it like any dairy product. So that oh, okay. stuff is loaded with nutrients. You're not missing anything. And you don't need that much of it to get all the growth you want. So if, so, I, if I love Starbucks, should I get coconut milk with my, uh, yeah. for my latte instead of regular milk? Huh? Yeah, a lot of people do that. And I hmm. told them about that. And they come up to me and say, thank you for telling me. Yeah. So, oh, actually, you mentioned this a few times. Why is dairy bad for you is it just that it contains a lot of phosphorus or yes. are there other reasons that's the main reason the other thing is it contains oxidized cholesterol or it could depends upon whether it's been pasteurized or not for cheese for example the oxidized cholesterol is what is 
connected to atherosclerosis. Cholesterol is normally in your arteries. It's normal to be there. But when it's oxidized, it doesn't fit into your arteries properly. And that causes the arteries to become permeable to other substances like more cholesterol, for example. So that gets in within the lining and that causes an immune reaction, which causes the foam cells, which cause the atheroma, which blocks the, uh, the arteries. So it all has to do with the oxidized cholesterol. Now, interestingly, we talked about this, but in France, they have the French paradox. Their cholesterol, they have a, they even more cholesterol and saturated fat than Americans do, and they have less heart disease. And the reason is, and I've written an article on this, probably because the cholesterol is not oxidized. They eat, much of their cholesterol comes in the form of raw, the traditional raw French cheeses. Now, people think, oh, no, it's the red wine, but that's been proven not to be the case. It's, it's, the, low, it's the low oxidation of the uh, uh, cholesterol. So how do we get onto that? So in addition to being too high in phosphorus, it's also high, can be high, unless you're eating like raw dairy, which I know I don't want to get into that, but like raw dairy, traditional French cheeses, high in uh, oxidized cholesterol also. So what, what are the actual nutrients you're getting? Well, calcium is the main one. Do you know you only absorb a third of the calcium from milk? One third. You know how much calcium you absorb from green vegetables? Two thirds, twice as much. And yet the phosphorus in the milk, you absorb most of that. So the calcium ratio, the calcium to phosphorus ratio in milk is like you have three parts calcium and two parts phosphorus, okay? Well, if you can't use two of those two parts of calcium, now you have two, two parts phosphorus and one part calcium. Now you have twice as much phosphorus as calcium. And that's hard to see unless oh. you can see it on a, on a graph. But Yeah, something so, you mentioned earlier, you, you said that um, if there's a lot of phosphorus, then it'll, it'll you know, through parathyroid hormone, it'll leach calcium out of your bones. Right. Why not just supplement with calcium to offset that leaching? But you're still stuck with the problem of creating calcium phosphate. So, okay, so it, yeah, yeah. it may spare your bones, but it'll. And you know what? Your body's going to have a everything. hard time with calcium supplements, and you're just going to make the situation worse. I can't see. I wouldn't recommend that at all. So, you know, explore it from all angles. That's why I asked. So, yeah, okay, yeah. so exactly. calcium supplementation would help maybe one problem, but it would exacerbate the other one yeah, with calcium exactly. phosphate. Exactly. And that's assuming that the calcium is even absorbable from supplements. That's very suspicious about that. How, how stable and how intractable is calcium phosphate calcification in your body? Is it is there any way to dissolve it or yes. once it's there, you're yes. screwed? Now, Mohammed disagreed with me. He said, oh, once you got calcification, that's it. And I said, no, there are other, we, we, there, the research says that there are other molecules that can help to break that calcium down, that calcium phosphate down, that calcification down, right? Of course, the problem is if you haven't turned off the faucet that's delivering all that excess calcium phosphate, what good is it breaking down, right? You're still not getting, making any progress to reduce it. So if you reduce the intake of your phosphate and reduce this biosynthesis of all that excess calcium phosphate, the, the calcium phosphate that's already present will eventually break down. And the reason is because remember before I mentioned how bones have to kind of break down and then build themselves back up again. That's, there's always a renewal system going on. So calcification is bone tissue, except that it's growing in your soft tissue, right? And like any other bone tissue, it breaks down over time. The problem is if you keep on replacing it with more calcification, right? That's the real problem. So the good news is, yeah, you can reverse this. Okay. And I guess that would be another study. This yeah. that has a you know, super calcified heart or arteries that they went on a low phosphorus diet for you know a while that reduce. If we designed a, a phosphate, uh, low phosphate experiment study, there are all kinds of out, out um, endpoints that we could look for. You yeah. Know, what are some of those other endpoints that you think, like what, what well, do you think um, a high phosphorus diet causes cancer? What else? You would look for, you just were talking about it, vascular calcification. We can look for changes in that. We could look for changes in the kidneys themselves, right? We can look for changes in the other glands uh, that are related to diabetes. By the way, pancreatic cancer is the most common cancer in diabetes, right? Really? So there you go. There's that, that phosphate connection again. The reason why 
diabetes is connected with phosphorus is, is as I said, because of the pancreas, but glucose needs phosphorus for metabolism. So it's, they, they kind of go together. Actually, I need to go back and, and review all that material because I've written it all up in some studies. But getting back to your question about what other endpoints could we look at, we could look at um, osteoporosis, vascular calcification, kidney disease. We can also look at dementia. You know, we didn't even talk about that. This is my latest study. There's hyper, hyperphosphorylation of the brain cells in dementia. That's what causes the neurofibrillary tangles to appear. That's a, a sign of dementia, right? Now there's also another one. There's another sign called the amyloid plaques. That hasn't been found to be as significantly associated with dementia as the tangles. And the tangles are caused by hyperphosphorylation of the neurons. So phosphorus has a negative charge. So if the neurons are absorbing too much of the phosphorus, that negative charge tends to tangle up the neurons, basically. You, you, the, you're, the, you're put the balance all out of whack between the positive and the negative part of, of the neurons, right? And how do you know that hyperphosphorylation of the neurons leads to plaque formation? In fact, okay. I, I gave you that article. You looked at it. That's the one on stress and dementia. I wanted you to, to just expand upon it. So oh, hyperphosphorylation okay. of the neurons, like literally, what does that do to them? It just, it impedes their signaling and therefore the brain tries it to heal itself. And yeah, yeah, it kills them. It causes apoptosis, right? It kills the cell. It's just like sarcopenia in those P53 mice and in the phosphate toxicity mice. And also in uh, that calcification, all of this starts to just cause the cells to die. And while they're dying, they're, they're kind of just shriveling up, literally shriveling up into these tangles, right? So there's all my saying is there's an, another endpoint in our study that we could look at all these things. Once you get a, a people on a low phosphorus diet, boy, there's all kinds of stuff you can look at. So the current state, so the average person you think they're taking in how much phosphorus a day, and if they got it down to what, like a one gram a day, that would be a pretty good goal. Yeah, even less. I think somewhere between 800 and 900 for most people. Depends how big you are too, right? And again, there are other conditions of life, being pregnant, all those other things. Anything where you are expected to grow more, you know, you, you have to be careful. You don't want to really li over limit your phosphorus and your protein because they go together. But for normal people, especially normal adults, you know, 800, somewhere in that, that 800 to 900 range, not going above 1,000, not going below 700. That's the ideal, in my opinion. Where do you think people are at currently, you know, for the yeah, average Well, person? we know where they're at. They're at 1,400, uh, all the way up to 1,800, up to 2,200 milligrams of phosphorus a day. We already have the studies on that. Not only that, their calcium phosphorus ratio is completely inverted. It should be two to one calcium to phosphorus. They have it the exact opposite. So, for example, can you somebody, see this? Can you you mentioned the uh, blood test for calcium really isn't doesn't give you the information you need. How about a blood test for phosphorus levels? Would that tell you anything? Yeah, but there's one problem with that. Think of the serum as like a highway. It transports all these minerals, but those minerals eventually leave the highway and they go to visit the cells, right? So you could have a lot of intracellular phosphate even though your serum levels are reasonably normal. And that's the problem. So you can't always depend upon just serum levels. However, if your serum levels are high, higher than normal, well, then you obviously have a problem. I'm just saying that just because they're not high doesn't mean that there isn't a problem, you know, in the body tissues itself. And by the way, when they, when they break apart tumors with radiation, they, you can get a condition known as tumor lysis syndrome. What's happening is the phosphorus is being released from the tumor much quicker than it can be managed in the serum. And so it can be deadly. That was the whole reason why the tumors were stirring up the phosphorus in the first place, to protect you from that sort of thing. So what's the solution? Oh, the solution is just to reverse the growth of the phosphorus. Let it eventually come out. Give it time. It'll come out, but don't be in a rush, right? because you're gonna now overburden the uh, regulatory systems 
that we're trying to manage the phosphorus in the first place. And if, if they become overburdened, that puts your life at risk. I wonder if uh, even a temporary low, extremely low phosphorus diet, when you're going to go through chemo or when you're going to go through radiation, that that would help you and protect well, you somewhat from the negative effects. You know what? That's interesting that you bring that up because that's what happens when you're on a fast. And one of the uh, most common ways people experience a fast is if they have a fever. Because when you, when you have a fever, not all people, but generally most people lose their appetite. And it's been shown that fevers are associated with reduction in or remission of tumors. Now, I think the mechanism has to do with the fact that you're just eating less, right? And so just as you suggested, if you have less phosphorus, that gives your system a chance to clean up in a way, right? To start to excrete all that stored up, sequestered, we call it sequestration, that sequestered phosphorus. Okay. Now, actually, there are some people who suggest that we give people fevers just for that reason. I think you're missing the yeah, point. Yeah, I've heard of that uh, hyperthermia yeah. treatment. Yeah. Right. That's kind of missing the point, in my opinion. That, that's what happens when you don't really understand what the mechanism is underneath and how this is really working, you know? So you got to be careful about that. You know, obesity okay. is linked to high phosphorus intake. Again, that's more obvious, I think. Just more food, more phosphorus in general. Um, yeah, you said it's an anabolic effect. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. All right. And then, well, very good. Yeah, Ron, what's the best way? What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? The easiest way is just to go to Google Scholar or scholar.google, I guess. And then my name, Ronald B. Brown, and all my articles are there. Well, you have a pretty common name. Are there a lot of Ronald Browns? And no, I put Ronald, Ronald B. Period Brown. Oh, okay. Well, very good. Well, Ron, thank you for coming back. And uh, it's very interesting what you're talking about. And I, I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity, Richard. Like I said, I've been sitting on this information for a long time. I've been busy with COVID-19 research, so I had to refresh my memory about a lot of this research, but it's definitely worth getting out to the public. So thank you for the opportunity. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.